And we'll be in uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. And verse 38 comes after verse 37. There's a connection there, you know? Uh, And so we'll talk about the context and how that continuity plays into this passage. But before we do that, let's go ahead and open up with some prayer. Will you join me? Heavenly Father, um, oh, we need you. Father, we need you so much. I need you. I need you to give me the words today in what is a, a difficult passage. I need you to give me the strength after a, a week that was challenging. Father, we need your spirit to speak to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, the year was 1980. The United States ice hockey team going to the Olympics that year was comprised of amateurs, college kids. In fact, this is the last Olympic year that they still developed these types of teams with amateurs. After this, the Olympics started forming what was called the dream teams. Some of you might remember that, where the pros started forming teams. But in 1980, it was still amateurs. And if you remember, there was a lot going on in that time in the world. You had the Cold War. There was a lot of uh, frustration, unsettledness, unease. And as the Olympics were gathering, the United States knew that the Russian hockey team was the best in the world. They had won over and over and over and over and over again. And our country just, we just wanted to win. We just, we just wanted to win. And uh, Herb Brooks was, was the coach of the U.S. Uh, hockey team that year. And he took all these players from different colleges. And he had to teach them a completely new way of playing hockey. He had to teach them how to play together. Uh, see, they, they were all uh, very proud of how they played, the styles that they grew up in. Uh, they understood their college styles really, really well. But they didn't understand how to play with each other. And uh, there's a movie called Miracle about it. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful movie. I, I recommend you all watching it. But um, there's a scene where you can just uh, see with the practices going, the team is getting frustrated. They're at each other's throats because uh, this person's from Minnesota and this person's from, I don't know, anywhere else. That's the only college I know of uh, that played hockey because I never played hockey. But the point was, was that they were rivals. They were at each other's throats. And they weren't playing together, and, uh, and the coach is just getting furious. And he shouts out something to the effect of, when are you going to learn that the name on the front is more important than the one on the back? And his point was, they're playing for USA. They're on the same team. Stop worrying about your own name. Stop worrying about your own name. Play for the United States. It's interesting, but that's what kept coming to mind over and over as I was preparing for this sermon. Last week, you saw the disciples, right? Jesus had just uh, told them again what was going to happen to him. It was another prediction of his passion that he was going to die 
and raise again three days later? Remember, they were up uh, in the northern part of Israel, and they had just turned to start heading south. Jesus has fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. And we're in the book of Mark here, chapter 9. Remember, it's it's the second part of Mark. That first part was asking the question, who who is Jesus? And now that we know he's the Messiah, now now we're answering the question, what does that mean? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? And that's where we're at. Jesus is explaining it to his disciples. He's the kind of Messiah that's going to suffer. He's going to serve. And he's going to sacrifice himself for the world. And they're trying to figure it out. And so Jesus has this prediction. He tells them what's going to happen. And they start talking about who's going to be greater. Who's going to be the best out of us, out of us disciples? That's the context of what was happening right before our passage. And Jesus tells them, you need to receive everybody. You need to serve the least, and then you'll be first. That he, He flips the idea of greatness, that humility is the pathway to greatness. And it's, it's in that that we enter our passage today. So uh, please read with me Mark uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. Now, as, you, as we approach this text, you're going to see a couple things. You're going to see uh, that sin is embedded in these disciples, just like it is in us. That they have a desire to be great. And that we have to get rid of that sin. We have to get rid of that sin. We have to take it seriously. Sin is serious business. And by taking care of that sin, it will lead us to unity as a team. All right, that's what we're going to see. So first, uh, let's begin reading. Uh, Verse 38, chapter 9. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. This is really interesting. Uh, John here is saying, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him. Why? Because he was not following us, our group, our team. You know, that exclusive club that that I'm a part of, right? Honestly, the commentators are a little bit all over and kind of split here. Some suggest that John is is showing uh, ignorance here, that he's expressing his form of pride, right? That he's, he's a part of the group and uh, that we stop someone that's not a part of the group. But Luke chapter 9, the parallel account, uses a different wording. Luke chapter 9 actually says that John answered Jesus. And this is a really interesting thing. What does Jesus say right before this? He says, uh, verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me uh, does not receive me, but him who sent me. And then out of that context, Luke uses the words, John answered. John answered. So it's possible that John was realizing, oh man, we tried to stop him, and that was actually possibly not good. That doesn't fall in line here. Either way, he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. Now, the reason they tried to stop him is very important, and we have to pay attention to it. Because he was not following us. There is this idea of an exclusive group that is expressed there. And we have to remember that Jesus particularly called the 12, right? He called the 12 disciples that they would be with him and that they would have authority 
That's really important because uh, it does give this idea that there's something unique about the 12. I, I think it's probably a natural uh, step for them to be like, hey, like, tr- stop doing that because you're, you're not part of this group. I'm not saying it was right. In fact, Jesus says it was wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's a natural step, I think. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said, verse 39, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Now, Jesus says, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name. See, isn't it interesting that the disciples wanted to stop someone, but Jesus says, don't stop them. And this is why we get back to the reason, because he was not following us, is why they tried to stop him. It's not, uh, teacher, we prevented him because he was teaching falsehood about you. It's not, teacher, we prevented him because he was lying about you. We prevented him because he was doing things that you said not to do, right? It had nothing to do with that. He was just had another ministry that was different than what the disciples were doing. Now, some people will point to this and say, see, this is why we need to just let everybody just be. The problem with that is that there are numerous passages that speak out about Christians and even Jesus himself calling out false teaching, calling out the uh, hypocrisy in the Pharisees. There are reasons to not to to oppose religious leaders if they are wrong. But the case here is not a a theological or a doctrinal error. It's not heresy. It's not anything like that. It is a, a ministry of possibly a different form. Mark actually doesn't even talk about the exorcist here. He doesn't bring anything to it. In fact, none of the gospel writers that talk about this really highlight much about the man performing exorcisms. Do you know why? Because the point is not him. The point is the disciples. The gospel writers are trying to reveal what is in their hearts, and what's in their hearts is that pride. This sectarian attitude that it's us and then everybody else, right? Like, Our small group is best, and it needs to stay that way. And I really think what Jesus is saying here is, look, the name of God, my mission is bigger than your name. It's it's just like that hockey team trying to be a bunch of individuals who are making their names great. And they were great hockey players. They were great at what they did. But man, they sucked as a team. And Jesus here is saying, look, your concept of greatness is not what is right in the kingdom of God. You need to put God and the mission of God before yourselves. Okay? Get rid of that that sectarian attitude. I keep using that term, but it's, it's this idea that an exclusive group it is meant to hold all the, the secrets and the praise and the, and the hopes and the dreams, right? And everybody else is just left to be. Now, remember what I said. 
It is, it's not a position of theological difference or doctrinal difference, right? We see that called out over and over again in the New Testament where correction is made. This is purely someone else is doing something, but he's not a part of us, so we wanted him to stop. It's, it's, it's really important for us to understand that. And where does this attitude develop? Where does this, this idea that we should make ourselves great, that there's this, there's this pride and a desire to be great. Uh, Augustine talked about this. He, he, he uses the, the word incurvatus ense. It, it's Latin for uh, the inward turn, right? Um, Luther uh, expands upon this later. But it's this idea that when sin enters the world and, and, and touches your heart, that all humanity is turned in on itself. There's an inherent selfishness that is in every single one of us. And the Christian walk is a turning out toward God and toward others. That's why you see this over and over and over again. It's the sin of pride that is in us. And it's the sin of pride here that drove the disciples to not see that it can be good. It can be good when people work for Jesus and his name is proclaimed. That's what I think is amazing here. Look at what he says in verse 41. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Jesus is trying to say, look, we have to understand uh, what's going to happen. Jesus is, is on the way to be persecuted. He's going to upset quite a few people with what he says, and they're going to put him to death. He's going to lay down his life. And then do you think the road's going to be super easy for the disciples and for everyone else? No, it's going to be really, really, really hard. In fact, uh, while this was being written, persecution was, was very hot on the disciples. The early church was greatly persecuted. And Jesus knows that they're going to need allies. That it's, that it's about uh, cooperation and, and, and working together. In fact, uh, there are so many, I think there's 59 verses uh, in the New Testament that refer to one another. What are, what do we, how do we treat one another? What does it look like to be with one another? It was a, a really important concept in the New Testament. So Jesus is trying to correct them here and say, look, even if somebody just gives you the, the smallest amount of hospitality because of who you represent, because of me, that you're representing Jesus, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And they'll not lose their reward. Now, uh, this is extremely important. It, it's... Um, Sin is so embedded in each of us, including these disciples, that even a small thing like that can have big ramifications. For the disciples' ministry going forward, for our lives as well. And that's why sin is really serious and that we take care of it. And that's what he moves into here. 
See, the, the opening of this passage is about someone who was uh, performing uh, exorcisms that wasn't a part of their group, that they tried to stop. And then Jesus seems to take a right-hand turn and move right into the hearts of the disciples. We have to make that connection. Look at what it says. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, uh, one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. I mean, that's, that's a big statement. I hope, I hope you all hear that and think like, wow, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble. Now, what, what does he mean by little ones? He may, he may still have a child. Remember, he puts a child before them uh, talking about um, uh, serving, serving the least of these, that whoever receives uh, the least of these uh, or a child. So it might be a child that he's referring to, but he's probably referring to also those uh, of new faith, of weak faith. A little one. In fact, uh, later on, he uses the, sim, the same type of term for the disciples. So it's, it's really interesting how Mark uh, highlights some of these terms. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. The disciples would know exactly uh, this type of imagery. Uh, th there were different sized millstones in that day. This isn't like one of those hand millstones. This is like one of the giant millstones that would be turned by like a donkey or something like that to, to grind. So this isn't like a, uh, this, is a, this is a death sentence. That's what he's saying. It's better that they would be hurled into the sea and, and drown than if they would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And the disciples would probably be thinking about the Romans that did this in that area to some of the Jews. That's probably what's on their mind. And Jesus uses hyperbole and imagery to get his point across. And the point here is that, look, sin is really serious. And I think the stumbling here of a little one is due to the earlier section, the pride of these disciples and their uh, sectarian attitude. Because if you think about it, a, a new believer shows up and is excited about Jesus. And some of you might have an experience just like this. And they go to a church Just imagine if a new believer goes to this church and sees mature believers quarreling amongst each other and fighting. Fighting over who's going to be the most important. I was supposed to put out the communion bread. That is my job. How dare you put out the communion bread? I was supposed to have a solo on that song. They took it away and gave it to someone else. You guys are chuckling a little bit, but come on. You know that those phrases have been said in churches, right? Like that, that is 100% that is a real thing. And it's a little comical, but the idea is the same here. 
It's detrimental to someone's faith when they see believers act in that way. That's not the way we're supposed to be. That's not how it's supposed to be. In fact, what does John uh, record Jesus' phrase? In, uh, it's uh, John, chapter, um, John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have a solo in the song. No, 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 no. It's if you put out the communion bread. No. By this, you will, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It, it, is, it is the way that we treat each other and the unity within the body of Christ that actually shows other people who we are. So Jesus is taking this moment to tell his disciples Knock it off. Stop living that that prideful, divisive attitude. He's going to come back to this later in Mark. In fact, he has to address it more. He has to address this more than once. But even in uh, even in John, when it's recording the washing of the disciples' feet, moments before Jesus. is sacrificed. He's still teaching them about what it means to be great. Not to fight about this kind of stuff. It's very important. And we need to understand that sin is serious business. And that's why he moves into these next verses here. He talks about uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, right? So he, he moves from this idea that, look, if, if your pride, your, your sin causes one of these of littler faith to stumble, well, that's not good, right? It, it'd be better for you that you would be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. Oh, man, Jesus, that sounds, that's, that's pretty rough. Now, hi, hyperbole here, okay? I, I don't think he's really saying that, right? There's some hyperbole here, but he's driving home the point. So he moves from this idea of causing someone else to stumble, and then he moves to the inward sin. In fact, if your hand causes you to stumble, you should what? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, you should what? Cut it out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, um, I, I want to be clear, Jesus is not actually advocating uh, mutilation. He's not actually advocating that you should, um, you know, amputate yourself. That, that, that's not what's going on here. He's using hyperbole. And, and the hyperbole he's trying to say is, look, there's no negotiation with sin. It's amputation. You don't try to explain away sin you don't try to figure out, okay, they're, they're, I, I can live in it a little bit, but then I'm going to stop it right here. No, it, you cut it off. And the sin that the disciples were currently dealing with was their own pride. They have to cut it out. I use that phrase with my kids. Cut it out. I'm usually not talking about the sin in their heart. Usually, it, usually it's, a, it's a behavior that I don't like to see as a parent. But I have to tell you, I think it's the same type of thing here with Jesus. Cut it out. 
because it's sin that causes us to do things that our Heavenly Father doesn't like. The Holy Spirit is moving us towards holiness. And part of the process of moving us towards holiness is doing the hard work of getting rid of the sin that is inside of us. Now, some of you, maybe all of you, I don't know, but some of you are probably thinking, well, I'm not, I don't really have any big sin. I live a pretty good life. I don't even try to sing solos. I don't have to try to see my name great. I don't, I don't need my name in lights, all, the, all that stuff, you know? Uh, the problem is this. As I said earlier, sin has touched every single one of us. It causes us all to turn inward. It causes us all to turn inward. In the, in the words of uh, the great theologians, DC Talk, they say, the disease of self runs through my blood. It's a cancer that's fatal to my soul. It's true for all of us. It's like this, this gangrene that we need to cut away. So we have, to, we have to see the sin that is in our lives to cut it away properly. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but first I want you to see something. Jump ahead to verse 49, please. For everyone will be salted with fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. I have to tell you, there's about 15 different ways that people try to explain this verse. There, there is a, a, a lot. But if we look at the context and what he's talking about, he's talking about uh, the disciples dealing with the sin that is within them. This idea that, that uh, there's an exclusivity that pertains only to them that shows their pride and desire to be great. That's the context here. And when we understand that, um, we, we, think about, uh, we think about verses like Romans 12, 1, where it says that, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The idea that the, the disciples were supposed to live a life as a sacrifice. And uh, Jesus is probably thinking in the context of the Old Testament here, uh, back in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, I think, it talks about grain offerings. Offerings that, that uh, were meant to be burned to God, and it's also instructed that they should be salted. And the way, that that, the way that that verse ends is that all sacrifices should be salted. So there's this idea that uh, they were supposed to live their lives as a sacrifice, and sacrifices are supposed to be salted. That's probably the best explanation for that verse. Uh, along with it, though, I think you also see this idea of, of fire and salt at play. What, what was fire supposed to do? Yeah, it was supposed to burn. I, I thought I heard it somewhere over here. Uh, yes, fire was supposed to burn. But there's this idea of being refined, of being purified by fire. And when you combine that with the idea of salt, what did salt do at this time? Yeah, it cleansed, it preserved meat. It kept meat from spoiling a little bit longer. It made stuff taste good. 
Same thing salt does now. I, I, I love some salt on my steak. But it's this idea that there is a, a purifying going on, that everyone will go through uh, the fire. And remember, they were going to be persecuted. The same is true for you and the same is true for me. There will be moments in our life where it will feel like we are going through fire. We'll be salted with fire. It's meant to purify us. Salt was used in conjunction with sacrifices. Salt was used to preserve, to maintain, to help things to be good, to make things better when you ate it. And he moves into this. Look at this. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, okay, hold on. What? Have you guys ever seen salt become unsalty? I've never seen salt become unsalty. Like that, that little, you know, the little jar. I mean, you can go into restaurants and they have to put like grains of rice in just so it doesn't clump up. But guess what? That salt's probably been sitting there for like 10 years. And when you put it on your fries, it's still salty. What does he, what does he mean? But if the salt becomes unsalty, where, all right, where did they get salt? At this time, they got it from, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the sea, right? And uh, over time, it was possible that it would kind of evaporate, the water would go away, and the, the, this crystalline residue could get left behind, and it wouldn't taste like salt. So in their perspective, right, they don't, they don't have the, the fancy iodized, so I don't know. I'm not a chemistry major. But the point is this is, different, this is different salt that they're familiar with. And it is possible for this salt to become unsalty. And look at what he says. Uh, if the salt becomes unsalty, uh, with, what will, uh, with what will you make it salty again? In other words, you can't. If the salt becomes unsalty, you can't make it salty again. So he says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. Um, Jesus, what does that mean? I don't understand, sir. What does it mean to have salt in me? Because I like to eat it, but I don't think that's what you mean. Well, you're right, Chris. That's not, that's not what I mean, okay? Or, or that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying have salt within yourselves. What does he mean by the salt? He's talking about the uh, purity, the goodness, I think he's talking about the gospel here. If you have a gospel perspective of yourself and a gospel perspective of God, then you will do what comes next. Be at peace with one another. Do you see how this is bookended with division among the disciples seeking to be great, them trying to exclude someone, and then the passage ends with Jesus' command to be at peace with one another. And in the middle, it's all trying to get rid of the pride that is in the disciples and the sin that will cause others to stumble and themselves to stumble. That's why sin is serious business, because we can't have unity with each other. We can't be a good witness for Christ if we are allowing our sin to make us unsalty. 
So what do we do? We've got to stay salty. And I see some of your faces. No, I don't mean like keep up with your, your wit and your sarcasm so that you can be disgruntled and, and uh, you know, shoot back at some people. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying stay salty according to the context of this passage. Stay salty. Have, have a good understanding of who you are in Christ and who God is. If I can say it a different way, have a gospel understanding of who you are in Christ and who God is. That will help you get rid of the sin that is in your life so that you can stay useful, so you can stay in the game. Uh, I I, I talked with Pastor Joe quite a bit about this this week. In fact, uh, this passage that I just read, Mark 9, 38 through 50, was, uh, I think it was William Barclay in his, uh, in his commentary on Mark, says that this is probably the hardest passage in all of the New Testament to understand. It's a hard passage because it, it seems to jump around, but if we situate it in the context, I think we can understand what it's saying. And Joe and I were talking about that this week and just uh, the difficulties within the passage and what I think uh, Mark is trying to get us to say. And Joe agreed. By the way, what I said just now, he agreed. I have the senior pastor's blessing that that's, that is appropriate, okay? Um, but we were talking more and he, he, he gave me these charts um, about a right view of self and a wrong view of self that he put together. And I think uh, it, it just lines up perfectly with, with where I was thinking this application needed to be for us based on this passage. In order for us to stay salty, I'm going to keep saying that because I just think it's fun. Uh, in order for us to stay salty, we have to deal with the sin that's in our lives by having a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. Okay, L- Let's talk about what the wrong view is. This idea of, uh, of pride and, and an inward turn that that makes us desire to be great and push our names higher. There's two main sides of a wrong view of self. There's two things. The first one is a low view. A low view of self. It's this idea that, oh, I am nothing. It looks like you maybe have low self-esteem. You start to develop an inferiority complex. And it manifests in our relationships because we tend to think about, well, what is my need? That comes out in our relationships. And so pride develops and comes out of that. And out of a low view, there's the development of jealousy. We tend to become jealous of others. That's what the disciples, right? This guy was performing exorcisms in your name. We told him to stop. They were probably jealous. Why? Because just before this, they tried to perform exorcisms and they couldn't do it. There's a jealousy there. In fact, I I think it also um, kind of harkens back to to this uh, section in uh, Numbers with... um, uh, with Moses, and let me see if I can find it in my notes. 
Nope. Oh, here it is. Numbers 11, uh, 26 through 29. I, I've been critiqued that, that I need to give the full verse reference when I, when I cite scripture, so I'm trying to do that. Numbers 11, uh, 26 uh, through 29. So uh, Moses uh, calls together uh, on, on God's request uh, 70 elders, and they surround the tent, right? And, and Moses goes in, has a little chat with God, and God sends his spirit upon these elders, and they begin to prophesy, right? But there's two, there's two of them that stay back in the camp and don't go with them. And I always remember their name because it's Eldad and Medad. I don't think that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I remember it, the dad and Medad. <laughs> Anyways, you got Eldad and Medad that hang out in the camp, and they start prophesying as well. So the spirit comes upon them, and they start to prophesy, right? What's the problem? Oh, they're part of a different group. They're a part of a different group. And so Joshua comes up to Moses and says, stop them. Moses, restrain them. They're, they're not part of this group. They're over there. They stayed at the camp. And this is what Moses says. He says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of them, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Isn't it interesting that we kind of see that at play there, that there's this idea of jealousy in that moment? We see the, this idea of jealousy here with the disciples, and, and I think a low view of self, an incorrect view of who you are, can also lead to jealousy in your heart. It leads you to crave attention. You begin to feel threatened by others, especially if they're successful. And this doesn't leave you free to serve other people. It doesn't leave you free to minister. It doesn't leave you free to be salty. You see that? Well, there's, there's a second part of this wrong view of self, and that's the high view. The I'm something special view. This is probably the view that the disciples are dealing with. It's the, the view of the, uh, the communion bread putter outer and, 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 the, and the soloist who felt uh, wronged, right? I'm special. How dare they? It, it, it's typically seen in this idea of an exalted uh, form of self-esteem, develops this superiority complex. But notice that it manifests in relationships in the exact same way that a low view of self does. It manifests in a relationship by thinking about what are my needs. I'm thinking about what my needs are because I'm so great. You see that? Pride, again, becomes a product of yourself and it's seen in contempt self-sufficiency, still craving attention, but no longer craving attention for the, for the need to, uh, to feel like you're important, craving attention because you feel important. You, you, see, you see the difference? It's, 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 it's subtle, but you guys see it all the time. Probably see it in yourselves a lot of the time. I know I see it in myself. You're still threatened by others' success, that they might catch up to you and how good you are. And again, you're not free 
You're not free to minister to people because you're thinking about yourself. You're always trying to prove that you're better. So those are the two wrong views of self. Ah, but what's the gospel view? What's the gospel view? The gospel view is this, that God made you for who you are. God made you who you are. It's not about your own self-image. It is about the image of Christ in you. That gives you a proper self-esteem. That you would know you are a sinner that's saved by grace so that no one can boast. That is a proper view of who we are. It's not a low view. It's not a high view. It is an accurate view that it is only by the grace of God that we are given new life in Jesus Christ. And the way that that view of yourself manifests in relationships is you begin to say, what do you need? Because that Christ-like nature, that servant attitude will manifest naturally. Pride is no longer a a product, but humility is. Because you have a proper view of yourself. You think about what others need because you think how God has made you. You give attention to other people. You listen to other people. You're not threatened by other people's success. Why would you be? You're excited by their success. That leaves you free to minister, free to serve people, free to keep being salty. Because you put others ahead of yourself. Amen? That's what it means. That's what it means to to stay salty, to have salt in yourself. This is why it's so important for us to understand that that sin is such serious business. It not only harms your relationship with God, but it harms your relationship with others. Sin makes you ineffective in ministry. Sin makes you ineffective in caring for other people. So you got to cut it out. You can't negotiate with sin. There is no negotiation. It's amputation. Get rid of the sin in your life, including the pride that is in your heart. So that you can be useful for God's ministry. I'm not going to ruin the movie for you. The movie Miracle. I hope you all go watch it. It really is a good movie. I might watch it later this afternoon with my boys. I'm not going to tell you what happened at Olympics. It's a good movie. But I will move on to another thing. A way in which um, the church failed in the past. In fact, uh, this has been called the greatest failure. The greatest missed opportunity in Christian history. Are you ready? 
In the years 1265 to about 1266, the Mongolian Empire spanned Asia uh, from the Black Sea all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Okay? And uh, Kublai Khan asked Marco Polo to send 100 Christians to come into his court to teach him about Christianity. That's what he said. In fact, uh, th this is the recording. Uh, send me 100 men skilled in your religion. If they're convincing, I shall be baptized, and then all my barons and great men, and then their subjects. And so there will be more Christians here than there are in your parts. That's a pretty amazing opportunity, right? So Marco Polo goes and he tells the Pope, Pope Gregory. And wouldn't you know it, a hundred Christians, right? The opportunity to minister. And they couldn't get out of their own way. Fighting amongst themselves about what's the best way to do it. And you can almost hear, if you're listening carefully, I bet you can almost hear what that sounded like. The divisive nature that sometimes is seen within the body of Christ. Oh, it's heartbreaking. They ended up sending two. And it was years before even they reached the court of Kublai Khan. And when they got there, this is what he said. He said, it's too late. I have grown old in my idolatry. He was very interested in, in Hinduism, and uh, Hinduism kind of spread throughout the Mongolian Empire. In fact, um, up until probably just a few decades ago, maybe, uh, there were zero Christians. Now there's about 2% is what we're estimating. What a missed opportunity. It's sad. It's sad that there's an opportunity to minister the name of Christ to people. And we get in our own way. We can't let that happen. We need to stay salty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I continue to think what a blessing it is to, uh, to know you and, and praise you. I, I know that, that I struggle with the sin uh, of pride. I know that we all do. I know that it is difficult when we begin to uh, compare ourselves to others, when we desire to be great, um, e even from a, from a perspective of, uh, seemingly pure motives to be great for, for you. We need to remember that it is about exalting your name and not our own. Oh God, will you help us see that, that sin is just, it's so serious and we have to take it seriously. That we have to cut it out of our lives. God, will you help us do that? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.